Welcome to the Our Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. Thank you. Well, I'm excited for the last session. Today was a little bit different from yesterday. Today we explored more the kind of social and broad implications of this story. And, um, you know, when we, when we deal with stories, obviously how we interpret events is uh, very important. It can either add value to that event or subtract value from it. Two people might experience the same thing, the same event, but experience it very differently because we involved in forming the meaning and the significance of any event. And so as we started this journey of reinterpreting some of our most favorite and sacred stories, thank you for just the openness and the patience to actually follow alternative ways and perspectives of looking at these stories. And, and I hope, you know, that will enrich your appreciation wherever you settle of how to interpret those stories, that, that it will enrich your interpretation of them. Um, obviously, interpreting uh, has always been a massive question within the Christian tradition. We've always wanted to know well, what's the right interpretation? <laughs> um, and maybe it's part of our understanding of truth, which unfortunately has often been a very kind of static thing, that truth is changeless, truth is motionless, truth is somehow static, and so... If I can find the right words to describe this truth, then my words becomes as immutable, as unchangeable as the truth I describe. And, and so we've kind of settled into these are the creeds, these are the things I believe, and that captures truth. Um, the early disciples very much had the question of interpretation on their minds because the stories that spread about Jesus was tremendously diverse. Even with the best effort to reduce it, we still kind of, you know, we've only got four Gospels. There were, and those four Gospels, if you actually know the evolution of them, to where they came to be, what they are now. Uh, we don't really know if Matthew wrote Matthew or if Mark looked, wrote Mark. In fact, most people are quite convinced they did not, or John wrote John. Luke is maybe one of the names that we can say that he probably read it. And I so enjoy Luke's uh, first introduction um, where he says, Oh, Theophilus, I've I've read some of the other accounts. Now, we know Matthew and Mark was written before Luke. I've read some of the other accounts about the life and teachings of Jesus. And then I thought, I better write you an accurate account. <laughs> and so, so I went about doing all the studies and kind of 
Here's a better version, really, <laughs> of what happened. But uh, this problem of interpretation was very real for the early Christians as well. How do we understand the significance of Jesus, of what he achieved? There's so many ways of viewing it, so many ways of interpreting it. And so, actually, in Luke, one of the last chapters, we read the story of the road to Emmaus, where, where um, two disciples, just after the traumatic events that happened in the previous two days, are, are on this road, um, and they're having a discussion. One of them was, I think, Sefer, something like that name, and, and the other one, an unknown disciple. In other words, these are not part of the A-team. They're not part of the inner circle. It's uh, the disciple whose name is mentioned, but never again, really, and the unknown disciple. And this is a very clever literary device by Luke. It kind of invites you in to say that maybe you are one of those unknown disciples that's also on this road of discovering the significance of what actually happened. And, and they're having this conversation about all the things that they have witnessed. And, and they were walking, looking sad. Now, you cannot have a more literal interpretation than having been an actual eyewitness of the crucifixion, the death and everything that followed and being with the disciples that, that had these confusing stories about that the tomb was empty and what do all these things mean? And it's in the midst of the conversation that Jesus joins them. Ha ha! I so love this Jesus who doesn't join us in the midst of you shut up and listen to the monologue. But it's this Jesus who joins us in the midst of this confusion and conversation of we're not quite sure how to interpret what does this mean. He comes and walks with them in that conversation. <laughs> and he says, why are you walking and looking sad? And he uses a Greek word that is very rare. In fact, one of the only other places where that Greek word occurs is in another story, which you'll be familiar with. It's when the baker and the butler both had dreams in prison and they don't know what it means. And they walk past Joseph looking sad, looking down. It uses that same Greek word. Can you see how Luke kind of picks up, and I say Greek word because they read the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and it's in that version that that word is used. So Luke picks up on another story that had to do with interpretation. And the way in which they interpreted things left them confused and sad, looking down 
And Jesus says, what things? And, and they start telling him about, are you the only stranger about Jesus whom, you know, we hope he would be the Messiah. Already there's a lot of baggage, a lot of interpretation of what is the Messiah supposed to be. Uh, and this Jesus didn't quite live up to all our expectations. And, and then what made things worse is people now say that he, he was raised from the dead. And we, we just don't know. And Jesus said, no, you, you slow of understanding. But, uh, 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 and, oh, yes, a beautiful part there. When he joins them, it says they were kept from seeing him. Um, it's almost something that just passively from their side happens, but it's actively, they are kept from actually physically um, recognizing him. And so Jesus begins in all the scriptures to, to show how these things apply. They don't know it's him, but how all these things actually fit together. All the scriptures concerning himself. Maybe, maybe he starts unveiling how it has always been God's desire to be part of his community. Maybe he starts unveiling the gods that we've created in our own image, our projections, even our insistence that God must be just the way we understand justice, that God must be omnipotent. You know, obviously, if there is a God, he must be all-powerful. And so even that idea of a omnivulnerable God, <laughs> a God who becomes part of the human experience, who experiences all you experience. These are big shifts in their understanding. It's big things that he starts speaking through and, and understanding comes and, and their hearts begin to burn and, and Jesus makes as if he is going further. You, you see, Jesus isn't desperately saying, okay, guys, I see your hearts are burning Quickly, yes, my cards, fill them in. Um, I want to make sure that we're going to really capitalize on this moment. But Jesus actually makes us if he's going further. You see, in a way, there's a place of encounter with God where even Jesus kind of knew that you can kind of point towards it to a certain place. But then it is such a beautiful moment of encounter. That it's not a moment that we should rush in or, or force people into it. It's a moment that you say, now you push in. And, and I hope that even in these two days, all that would have happened is an invitation to come to a place of encounter, a place of experiencing him beyond all the concepts and ideas and predefined expectations we've had of him. A God who wants to surprise you. And so Jesus makes as if he goes further and they press upon him and they say, stay with us. And he comes in with them into the 
um, area where where they were uh, having a meal. Now, one of the big big questions that the early church had to deal with is, where is Jesus? Now, some of us have seen him. Um, is he going to appear again? Now, he, he appeared to them and them, I'm really hoping he's appearing to, hey, let's have an all-night prayer meeting. Maybe he comes again. Let's fast this week and really get ready. We, I mean, those guys have had appearances of Jesus. We want it too. You know, and so this expectation of this resurrected Jesus that would at any time appear again and then it seemed to have stopped. Maybe Luke is starting to address that very interpretation of how do we understand the resurrected Christ? How do we interpret this event? And it is in the midst of brothers and sisters, in the midst of a confused conversation, where they sit down to have a real meal, that in the breaking of this bread, suddenly their eyes are opened. And the Greek is so beautiful because we kind of think it's a sequence. They broke the bread, their eyes are opened, then they recognize him. But the Greek has got this construct where it seems to be one event. And it is in this one event of breaking the bread that their eyes are opened and they recognize him and he is no longer a physical presence amongst us. Not because Jesus left them, but because in that moment, that epiphany of revelation, they realized that even the, the distance of a table between us is too much distance in the context of what he revealed, which is, you are my body. <laughs> so he doesn't disappear because he leaves them. He disappears from their sight because they discover him. <laughs> and their hearts are burning and, and suddenly they run back. They're seven miles. It's no longer just dragging your feet trying to work things out. But they run back to the other disciples to tell them, we found him. That, that burning heart sensation when he spoke, suddenly I realized that this is not just some weird and wonderful feeling. This is the resurrected Christ who has done what John said he would do. He came to make his home with us. So maybe I'm going to give you a little bit of a different interpretation today. Also just a suggestion. Kind of take this as a, an alternative way of understanding the return of Christ. <laughs> and, and you can hold on to your you know, the rest of your eschatology, it's not to exclude anything else, but it's to give you a part of the conversation of how people have understand it, understood the resurrection. 
and the return of Christ that is, uh, that is alternative to what we've maybe had in our evangelical context. We've said since yesterday that the scriptures contain multiple theologies in conversation with one another. Not just one theology, not just one thought, but multiple theologies conversing, sometimes disagreeing, but kind of moving in a direction. Um, and certainly one of the earliest understandings of this resurrected, descending Christ, which introduced us to an idea of who God was, brought an expectation that this changes everything. And we expect him to appear any moment again to establish this kingdom of, of love, to, to bring this to a final conclusion. The, the night is far spent, the morning stars rising, and, uh, uh, and, and Christ's return is imminent. We see it in the, in the writings of Paul, where, you know, in Corinthians he said, man, this is such a pivotal moment in history. Don't even bother getting married. Because you need to just give all your focus to this. Okay, if you really can't help yourself and you've already made a commitment, maybe you can go ahead. But really, this is your total focus. Christ can appear any moment. It's, it's almost like if you imagine all of us on a aircraft suddenly making an emergency landing near island and we wash up on this island and we kind of, we're so glad we survived and we think well surely they're out looking for us and hopefully they find us within hours maybe maybe a day or two but i'm sure it's going to be by tomorrow we'll all just stay on the shore we'll all just be there on the shore writing big sos's making noise whatever but but when the days become weeks and we suddenly realize we might be here for the long term and there's you know there's a shortage of water and food and there's some conflict maybe maybe in the context of conflict we now start seeing factions and different factions has got different leaders and this faction says, no, we need to eat and find water. We're going to go into the mountains. And the other one says, we sure they coming tomorrow. We must stay here. But suddenly, when the period is extended, we need more time to, to now survive where we're at. And many theologians believe that that is what happened with the early expectation of Jesus is the Christians expected this physical return of Christ any moment to such an extent that marriage, everything else was suspended. In fact, when Paul writes his authentic letters, um, when he writes to the different churches, he never writes to leaders because they weren't leaders. Because we don't need a hierarchy for this group camping out on the beach expecting Jesus coming tomorrow. <laughs> it's when we suddenly realize he's not coming the way we expected that we kind of need to rearrange onto how do we survive. 
in the longer term. And uh, so it's interesting that the Gospel of John that is written later than any of the other Gospels has got a very different emphasis on what they want to say about the resurrected Jesus. The Gospel of John has got no ascension because um, John's message is Jesus never left. That's kind of his emphasis, his focus. When we get to... Now, the others have got other emphases for their own reasons, okay? <laughs> um, but the Gospel of John in John 14, we read this passage where Jesus says, uh, I go to prepare a place. It uses a specific Greek word, and, uh, so that you may be where I am. Not so that you may be where I'm going to be. It was a place that Jesus was at in that very moment. <laughs> I go to prepare a place for you. And then in verse 20, it tells us exactly where that place is. It says, in that day, you will know that I'm in the Father. You are in me, and I'm in you. And my Father and myself will come, and we will make, and it uses the same word that we said, mansion or place. In verse 14, we go to prepare a place. And my Father and I will come, and we will make our mansion. <laughs> In you. <laughs> yeah, humanity is dreaming of some divine escape one day where we can eventually get the, the mansion we've imagined for all these ages. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 you are the mansion we've been dreaming of. It is in the midst of your life that we want to find existence, that we want to move, live, have our being. And so as John begins to emphasize this very beautiful idea, which in many ways might be an alternative understanding of eschatology, and for many branches of Christian faith, it is the orthodox version, that what God meant with the return of Christ is nothing less than he comes again in you. <laughs> that it is in your, your existence that the thoughts of God can find opportunity to again be displayed, to again be so radically subversive of the cultures we find ourselves in can again offer opportunity for people to encounter God in a way that they haven't encountered Him before. And so we're back with this story in Luke where I think the intention of the story was specifically this. However you interpret the resurrected Christ... I hope you know that the conclusion is that you find him within yourself, within fellowship with other believers. And this is where, this is kind of why the communion became such an important part of early Christianity. It is, 
it is this remembrance, uh, not of something that happened a long time in the past, but it is remembering, um, becoming aware again that there is another member <laughs> amongst us and where two or three of us are gathered together, there he is in the midst of us in this fellowship. So with all the stories that we've told about how to reinterpret Genesis, with all the stories we've told about understanding the old unfolding of the Old Testament and how they've been in conversation with the other religions, I think all these stories points towards this one most explosive event of incarnation in which God demonstrates that it has always been my plan to become flesh in you. That Jesus was never some plan B of God thinking, oh, heck, how do I deal with sin? One of, you know, let's go down there. I mean, this is what it's going to require. Do whatever transactions needed. But, <coughs> but Colossians tells us that Jesus, who, the, the Christ, who is before all things, you know, it wasn't Jesus then, so it speaks about Christ, this union of God and man. This was God's idea before all things. The incarnation was never plan B. It was always God's idea to manifest himself in human life. And so before all things, and in Christ all things consists. And this act in which the fullness of the Godhead comes onto display in a human body is not an event that was designed to just tease you with what you could never be. It was never an event that God intended for you to place upon a pedestal and to adore from a distance of, wow, look what God did in Jesus a long time ago. But it has, was always meant to be that mirror to confront us with the reality of this is what God sees in you. An opportunity for his word, for his thoughts to once again find flesh and existence in this world. <sighs> so however you interpret your story, <laughs> James says it in, uh, you know, in James, uh, 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 I think it's one, whenever you kind of face all these trials, difficult times, etc., if you, if you interpret your story right, and you make the sum right, count it, that word count is to make a sum, count it all joy. In other words, if your conclusion is not joy, you've done the sum wrong. <laughs> that the conclusion of the way in which God interprets your life, the conclusion is always joy. And he does it in the midst of trials, all these difficult things. He says, just add it all up. 
And you'll see in seeing it from God's point of view, the conclusion is joy. The conclusion is the realization of a God who has come to make his mansion in me. The God who has desired you and continues to desire you into existence moment by moment. And so, you know, I can take any text and find 20 different theologians going in 20 different directions about what it actually means. And today I can pre appreciate probably half of them, and I think at least 10 of them, I think it has got a beautiful truth in them, even some that looks quite in opposition. But in all those studies, in all those interpretations, I have this deep sense that what draws me towards truth is this ultimate awareness of a God who desires union with me. See, God, God doesn't want to be number one in your life. <laughs> he just wants to be one. He doesn't want to be a priority. <laughs> He just wants to be as you are. Be at home. Abide in me. Let my words abide in you. And um, glory. I just wanted to end off with that idea of interpretation. You know, with all the stories we've heard, let our interpretations draw us into awareness of union, awareness of a God who sees in you nothing less than the opportunity to once again be himself. Amen. And with that, I'm going to throw it open for conversation. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. So there's a lot of these pictures. So there's another picture that says we are seated together with him <laughs> in heavenly places. So you've got these different pictures that explores different ways of perceiving Jesus. And um, just as surely as me being seated together with Christ in heavenly places is not a description of just some physical reality about me. Um, I, I think in the same way I can look at Jesus interceding for us, not as a physical or t uh, attempting to describe a physical reality, but, but describing this, uh, the, the fact that he is our representative. You know, he is the face of man before the face of God. And that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah.
funny enough, I was sat there thinking of that the same thing. Yeah. Is it seceding for us? Why? With words or yeah. Um, it's beautiful if you take it um, with 1 John who, who says that uh, and 1 John going into 1, 1 John 2 where he says that you know even if you've com completely messed up <laughs> we have an advocate it kind of speaks of that same function of um, intercession um, uh, and the one translation says uh, and he has indisputable evidence of your innocence <laughs> and so uh, uh, join that to another scripture that says in the same gospel of one john that even if your conscience condemns you god is greater than your conscience <laughs> So it's again bringing us back to this idea that in Jesus, even when we come face to face with the reality of guilt, in Jesus we meet this God who completely forgives. And so to present us as the forgiven and, and to continually be the face of God to man and man to God, I think that is what that intercession um, is about. Yeah. Awesome. Um, when you're talking about um, like the early earlier people didn't have um, a concept of Satan for that kind of group. What about demons and, and, and evil? What about the philosophy of king not people but other natural disasters? Yes, yes. Such a big question, but so important. So, so um, good. So, yes, the Old Testament hardly has any um, incidences of exorcism of, or, or demons. There's one or two, you know, very scattered, but compared to the New Testament, where it's just everywhere, you can see the, how it evolved. Um, I've got about four chapters in Desire Found Me that deals with that evolution of the understanding of evil. Um, another good book that I can suggest on that subject is called The Birth of Satan. But um, the idea of Satan is it's a concept that has a history. And it's very easy when we've actually concluded what it refers to then we go and read it back in all the text and we don't see how the idea actually developed. It takes a lot of, I think, investigative work from people that's got much more time than me to actually try and work out how these ideas were shaped. Um, but, you know, the, to give you just an example, one example that's in the book as well, of how the theology of the Satan changed. In early Jewish monotheism, God, God was sovereign and responsible for everything. Um, so when they, actually in polytheism, it was easier to explain evil because there's many gods and my God doesn't always win. His will is not sovereign. So even if I imagined my God is just good, 
there's other gods that could overcome him and, and you know confuse so it was easier to explain evil but when you when you move to pure monotheism of various or early monotheism various just one god who's sovereign over all then the problem of evil becomes much more acute because he is responsible for everything. And so there are verses that says, I send disaster and I send prosperity. I, I create evil. And I, that's in Isaiah. And I create good. Um, and within that early monotheistic period, there's a um, scripture in uh, in Kings, where, where the events was basically that David wanted to do a census. Not everyone agreed, because it probably had tax implications, and so uh, while after David did the census, a disaster happened and 70,000 people died. So the way in which they interpret these events in, in early monotheism is this way. Yahweh was mad at Israel. That's a recurring theme. And, but he was so mad, but he didn't really have the justification to do to them what he intended to. So he tempted David to do a census. David actually kind of gave into this temptation. And then God punished Israel by killing 70,000. So that's the way they interpret these events from an early monotheistic uh, perspective. Later on, as the concept of Satan develops, um, the, the book of Chronicles is written. And in Chronicles, they repeat many of the same stories. But their theology has advanced. In their theology, they now have a concept of the Satan. And so they tell exactly the same story, changing one little detail, saying Satan tempted David to do a census, and David submitted to the census. Yahweh was mad and he killed. Yahweh is still the one that does the retribution um, and the killing thereafter. So that, that's kind of just a little taster to show you that the same story could be interpreted in different ways and is interpreted in different ways in the scriptures. Um, and some of them has a concept of Satan, uh, the more later ones, but the earlier ones does not. Where the whole concept really explodes is when they go into the Babylonian exile and they're part of the Zoroastrianism religion where there's this eternal battle between light and darkness, between good and evil. And this is a story that really captivates the imagination. Fear always does. And, and it's only when they come out of the Babylonian exile that books like the Book of Enoch and other extra-biblical books are written that, that explores in fantastic ways about the fallen angels and demons and this is very popular by the time Jesus comes you know they, that that's the story most of them then believes that is one story there's another story and a few others of biblical understanding as to what evil is and how, how to overcome it 
that's another two days, I think, to kind of explore the alternatives and to actually say what can we learn from the different views of, of how evil manifests and what it actually is. It's a massive question. So maybe those two books is the best I can do in this session. Mm. Is the idea that there were demons all along, and they just weren't mentioned? Or? It's not all along. So those, uh, those things also then develop. So let me, let me add in one little other piece of the puzzle. So from, from pure monotheism, there's obviously this real constraint that how can God be good but all these evil things happen? Now, we can still maintain that theology when we haven't been subjected to real evil. But it's when my child dies of uncurable disease or, or my husband's brutally murdered for no reason or whatever, then it becomes difficult to reconcile my theology that God is good with overall um, and evil is necessary. It becomes more and more difficult. <laughs> And so this tension within early monotheism um, leads to a kind of theological exorcism performed on God where all the qualities that we cannot bear to see in God, I'm speaking in their theology, not, they take the, the qualities of his accusation of being the prosecuting attorney and these qualities are given to one of his servants. So the early development of the concept of Satan is he is an angel whose task it is to prosecute, to find fault, to accuse. And so we see in the books of Job and Ezekiel that the Satan there is not the enemy of God. Um, he's an employee. Um, God, and even with the... You know, the killing of the firstborn of Israel, the angel of death. Um, they, they're not opposition to God. They're employees. God tells them what to do, where to do it, what to do. It is, it is when they come out of the Babylonian exile that the idea develops that maybe this is not just an employee of God. Maybe this angel has fallen and opposed God, and he's a real enemy. Um, so it's only after that that our ideas that we have today of this angel then taking a third of the heavenly hosts and all of those things comes out of extra-biblical books that we then read back into the scriptures as well. Um, so what I can do now is kind of give a few tasters of how the idea developed. I don't think I'm going to get to a place where I can give you all the different, because there's alternative understanding that's developed again. And when to actually come to a place of, so what does this mean? What are you saying? <laughs> how does it all work? That is another week, I think. Unless you're saying, oh, Jesus is just this kind of bumbling kind of guy who just mm. goes along with whatever the yeah. idea of the day was, which is quite difficult then if you believe he was true. Mm. So, 
I mean, I'm not, I don't think we have to talk about a theology of demons, but Jesus yes. quite clearly. In some of the Gospels. Some, there must be some, also some evidence mm. of Jesus yes. having expressed something of his time in the wilderness. Yes. That hasn't come from somebody else. Yeah. So let me, let me explain how even in the Gospels we've got different views of evil. So Matthew, you've mentioned the temptation in the, the wilderness, picks up on the, on the way of articulating the demonic that is very prevalent or evident in their time. The devil appears to Jesus. It's a personality that says, why don't you make these stones into bread? That temptation. Why don't you, if you are the son of God, why don't you jump off the temple and prove it to everybody? Um, or why don't you just do things my way? Bow your knee and, and do things according to my power dominant way. And all the kingdoms of the world is, is mine and I'll give them to you. So if we ask how does the Gospel of John tell that same story? And it's, you know, maybe the first response is, well, the Gospel of John didn't have the temptation story. But if we, if we change the, the question, is there a whispering voice in John that says, give us some magical bread, just make it out of nothing uh, or out of something else? We see in John 6, the crowd comes to him and says, our fathers gave us manna in heaven. What can you do? Uh, or, or, for instance, his brother says, if you really are a prophet, what are you doing here in Galilee? Why, shouldn't you go to Jerusalem and do this open display of your miraculous so that everyone knows you're a prophet? And it actually says, because they didn't believe in him. And they actually knew that, you know, if he did go to Jerusalem, it's the end of him. <laughs> but it's that temptation, the same temptation, jump off the temple, make it plain before everyone that you are the Messiah. The last temptation, you know, in John where he multiplied the fish and he feeds 5,000 and everyone wants to make him king. Take power, enforce your will, do it the worldly way, and, and Jesus withdraws to a, to a place. So we can see the same temptations happening in the book of John, but it always happens through people. And so it's interesting, even, even the mention of Satan throughout the John gospel always has to do with people. You know, Peter, Satan, get behind me. And he says this to Peter. Um, in the book of John, there's no exorcisms either. So maybe let me put this in a bit more context so that you know where I come from. Um, we began our ministry in Africa. You know, we uh, traveled just into Zimbabwe. And, and you can see demonic activity to an, to an extent which we hardly ever encountered in the Western world. Um, on one of our first trips, Marianne and myself, we were 18. We had a wonderful meeting out in the wilderness the night before, no electricity, nothing. She just played guitar, but in a place where it's so quiet, people could hear it from miles away. And after a while, we had 300 people there who, who has never heard the gospel. 
<laughs> and um, I thought there's no one here but knows us. So I'm just going to try this and see if God's really with us. And so at the end of the meeting, I said, um, if you're sick, just come forward. And if God doesn't heal you, you don't have to believe a thing we've said. <laughs> and I've never seen the kind of diseases. In fact, the people that we stayed with had a six-month-old baby that was born paralyzed. And they were like the first people out. And that night, like never before, I just saw God just heal everybody. It was uh, an amazing evening. That evening, we slept in our car because we didn't really, we weren't used to sleeping with fires. And sometimes you can't wake up with all the um, gases there. The next morning, you know, you tried to sleep in a car. It was like, the whole night battling until the moment I fell asleep, suddenly the car starts shaking and I look and it's all these faces. And I get out looking for our interpreter um, and this one young man grabs my hand and just holds it and, and babbles along and eventually the interpreter came. And he started explaining that all these people were from one village. And this young man, who's now about 26 years old, um, at the age of six, some kind of torment, what they, they also call an evil spirit, whatever, um, began manifesting in him so that whenever the sun would set, he would start howling. Uh, and this kept the village awake. Uh, and it's a problem because if we're awake, we can't work. If we don't work, we can't eat. And there's no one, there's no government structures there to help them with this. So they've got to come up with a solution. And their only solution was to take this young boy about a mile out of the village and chain him to a tree. And so for 20 years, they had this faint howling at the edge of their village that always made sleep a little bit um, less than what it could be. <laughs> being reminded of the torment and the evil possible. And they, they came that morning and said, we, we almost overslept because we've had no howling. And, and this young boy just said, I've, I've slept for the first time at night. He could sleep at day, which kind of really reduced his life because he could only work a few hours to, and he just wanted to take us he had a small field of sugar cane and he said I just want you to come and <laughs> you know enjoy this and so I tell that story to make it clear that we've encountered the reality of torment um, we've encountered the reality of that activity uh, and I've got no reason to deny that but how we explain what actually happens there. I think the idea of just uh, naughty little fallen angels causing all of this has become less likely to me as I start, started studying the other interpretations of evil through the scripture. And so I can read the other gospels and I can say, you, you know, I, I believe that, you know, people are, I know people can be tormented. And I know we've been given this amazing power to deal with it. Actually, we did in Switzerland just a few months ago. 
But yes, that is such a beautiful big topic. Wow. <laughs> How to take that further. Yeah. I don't think I can get much further into that today. Yes. I mean, obviously, as you start to, I mean, I, I, I grew up with an understanding of the Bible as like it's the Word of God, mm. and not necessarily like the inerrancy of Scripture, but like like mm. evangelical. Um, and I guess as you start to ask a lot of these questions, you mm. this thing that you put your trust in, you then like begin to distrust because how do you work out what is God and what isn't God? You know, like how mm. do you interpret it? I mean, I guess it's the question that. Probably is just being ignored because yeah. every, every time you read it, you interpret it, don't you? And yes. Everyone knows who's read it comes up with a different mm. answer. No, they'll be convinced that prophecy doesn't. Yes. Well, it does, <laughs> and it's in the Bible, but then yeah. it's, it's not in the Bible, etc., etc. But yes. in terms of like, in terms of like understanding, like so, you read like uh, like modern theologians, and they say lots of different things, which are probably different to what you might have heard etc but mm. not all of them necessarily know and love Jesus yeah and so I don't necessarily completely trust everything they're saying yeah but how do you how, how have you navigated like knowing what is really you can trust as information do you know what I mean yes so like for example the other day I was reading about like the letters of Paul and how mm. like common theological like um, opinion is that like he only wrote half of them mm. um but then, how do you begin to? How have you gone about doing? Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, abs you, absolutely. You and how do you find? Yeah. So, uh, 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 such, such a valuable question, and um, I think when we we come to that place where we actually find our security in being loved. Yeah. Um, and we actually discover a God that is not just contained in our beliefs, but the God that is so much more and so much broader than what we believe. It makes it so much easier to engage with the text honestly. And um, I have found it highly beneficial then to, to read stuff that, is the opposite of what I believe. Because <laughs> it's so easy to kind of just c confirm everything you believe. But, yeah. so if you like but intentionally if, then thought, oh, this is what I think, I'll find someone who thinks the opposite and see why they think that. I love exploring. So, for instance, let's take um, just the book of Revelations. Instead of, the, the, there's a book called compassionate eschatology and it's actually written by 20 different theologians to look at the book of revelations and see how can you interpret the message of a non-violent God of this God that's revealed in Jesus and each one of them has got different views they come from this broad same perspective and I found it so beneficial to actually think okay, there's maybe not one interpretation of truth. What draws me to truth always is if it produced the kind of life that Jesus lived. And what's the kind of life Jesus lived? Somehow he discovered 
a relationship with his father that took him out of the insecurities and out of the fear-driven life to a place where he discovered life is something I can give. Life is something I can share. And if that is the conclusion of any message, if it brings me to such an awareness of fullness, in other words, if it brings me to gratitude, <laughs> then I think that is the kind of interpretation that will enrich my reality. Um, but if it's an interpretation that leave, leads me away from the kind of life, the self-giving love that Jesus lived, then I really don't care how many scriptures they can quote. Um, because I know you can in, read it like, and I so appreciate what you say that even even if people believe in this is the inerrant word of God, if you get five of those people together, that will be the only thing they agree with. <laughs> that this is the inerrant word of God, but what this inerrant word actually says, they can't agree on. So it's not your attitude towards the scripture that makes it more simple or more complex in that way. I think this might seem more complex in the beginning to say that scripture is a conversation, but I think it actually makes your interpretation of it so much more simpler because your end result is, does this lead to the kind of life that Jesus lives? Instead of now having to argue that, yes, God is loving, but you know there are certain circumstances in which you should cook your children. Um, or those guys, I don't have to justify that. I'll just say, no, that has never been God. That isn't God and never will be God. That was men's perception of God. God looks like Jesus. There's my conclusion. And now I can read all of Scripture and say, even Jesus, you know, Jesus preferred some scriptures above others. <laughs> the Pharisees comes to him and say, so what about, you know, this subject? And he says, you know, I know that is what Moses told you, but that's not really the best idea. That's not the way it was from the beginning. And he quotes another scripture and, and he prefers that one above that one. Or you heard it said an eye for eye, a tooth for a tooth, love your friends, uh, kind of hate your enemies. But I say to you, they just override scripture and says, okay, no, we're going, we're going to a whole new level. I know that's in the, the Bible, but I, I'm going to take you forward on this developing understanding. So in a way, for me, although this might seem like a more complex way to approach scripture in the beginning, but it's conversation. I think it greatly simplifies it in the end when it brings it down to this relationship with Jesus. And, uh, and Scripture is this beautiful story and conversation that we find ourselves embroidered in. And, and the very act of interpreting is the act that starts forming me. And it's the fact that I can argue with it that, that makes the content even richer. I think one of the things that have put people off the Bible more than anything else is this idea that you cannot argue with it. All you can do is try and reconcile all the differences. So there's one professor, for instance, in North Carolina, you know, 
Bible-believing belt places that would ask his students, who of you believe the Bible's the inerrant word of God and like all 30 in the beginning of the class, all of us. So who of you have read it from cover to cover? Maybe one. So really you believe this is divinely uttered by the mouth of God and not one of you have read it. Um, because those attitudes sounds very holy and very sacred. But in reality, what it produces is people that cannot engage with the text because it means that you cannot actually converse with it. You should just keep quiet and listen. Whereas this attitude that says, hey, there's people that disagree with one another in the text. <laughs> and I'm inviting you into the conversation to ask questions and to challenge ideas and to move with us through this story to a beautiful conclusion. I think that, that produces people who are much more engaged with the text and honor it beyond lip service by actually engaging in it. What it has produced for me, and, and even for the people that's been doing our online school, is such a much greater appreciation for it. And there's such wealth in it, such richness. I, I can't stop, you know, studying around it and in it. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's very simple in one respect when you just believe the Bible is what God says. Yes. And, and most people treat it like that, don't they? Yeah. They read like Corinthians, they think they, most people read it as if it was directly written for them. Yes. And then there's an after or think, oh, actually, there was written to some people in Corinth, maybe I should see. Yes, what it were, meant. Yeah. But they just translate it directly from themselves as if yes. like, But that's very simple to do, isn't it? Mm. I mean, what you're talking about is actually really quite complicated. Yeah. Because. Yeah. Like, I mean, I was thinking the other day, like, some of the stuff in, um, like, the Gospels, like, there's bits where there's conversations happening, where whoever was writing wasn't actually there, so it's described, and the disciples weren't there, it's basically yeah. it talks about the Pharisees were talking. And Most of it is not eyewitness accounts, well, exactly. it's stories so of stories of stories. Lots and lots of questions, aren't you? Yeah. Um, <coughs> so it becomes very complicated, dude, but I think the other thing, like, is, in terms of, like, like, theologians yeah like like because you then have to trust their work don't yeah you? or you have to make decisions as to how valid what they say because that they, they write they, like theologians they maybe it's again this idea that what what i do when i read is i look at that text in terms of it pointing to something larger than itself yeah and if that direction is towards this relationship then, uh, then I really enjoy. But, but it's when I try and read a book to say, is this guy right or wrong? That, that it's, uh, I think life is more nuanced than right or wrong. It's more than black and white. It's this kaleidoscope of colors. And as I read, I can kind of appreciate that there's things that just so touched on beauty, so awakened my heart to beauty. And there's other things that, you know, that doesn't resonate. Um, yeah. There is such a thing as, like, as history, isn't there? Which is yes. like a, a solid fact as opposed to 
Yeah. Yes. Like, for example, you know, you, you, like with the Pharaoh having written mm. Mm. like a scholar has found some things and made like connection. They've said like, this is some evidence, this is the conclusion. Yes. But yes. I guess you don't have to trust that. And some of that's like critical. Yeah. But that, th those things are solid facts, aren't they? Yes. Saying, like, this is the, this yeah. Happened. Yeah. But. That left it. What's that? And I left it. Yeah, no, that I, kind I, I of, yeah. I'm just saying, like, in terms of, like, I don't, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just saying, like, I think, <laughs> I think what I'm saying is, like, it's hard to know what to trust, isn't it? Yeah. Because just because someone who's a theologian has said something doesn't necessarily mean they're right. Yes. Because, like, you know, we've I've all seen, like, in science, for example, everyone thought, yeah. like, you know, that, the, that Newtonian mechanics was it. And then yes. Einstein came up with, like, you know, and it's and it's so interesting that even today um, you know relativity and quantum physics are the two most successful proven theories yet they fundamentally disagree with one another you know they're, they're in such opposition so there's this mystery of this works and this works but they're saying two different things <laughs> which um, yeah wow so life is complicated and uh, to find that meaning in the midst of uh, that is um, part of this joyous journey um, I think a big danger as well that we were saying before that you mm. see from its fruit yes. is um, I hate to put labels on but the evangelical church mm. Yeah. Because the Bible is there to run parallel. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And once you turn it into a cold, dead Yes. Thing, that has captured God yeah. and captured truth. Yes. Yeah. In some cases, it definitely has because people say God can't speak outside. I mean, like in conservative evangelical circles, they say God can't speak outside of Scripture. Holy Spirit can't speak outside of Scripture. Holy Spirit's God. They've therefore put the Bible above God. That is like the definition yeah. of idolatry, isn't it? So, I, I, yeah, I think... Last time I was in the States, my brother said, uh, John Stott's caused furore. So I said, why, what's he done? He said, well, he just can't get the concept of, for eternity, there's got to be a prison of souls. Mm. So he says, the best thing I can come up with is annihilation. Uh, She's still pretty severe, but yes. terrible trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't you take our torment chamber from us? We will keep that. We we were in a church one day. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't me preaching. It was the pastor, and he just made some suggestion about the possibility, like in uh, Peter Free, that Jesus went to preach to spirits in prison. That you know. The possibility that, you know, even in this torment, God could approach them. And the one lady jumped up and she said, Don't you dare tell me that my mother is not burning in hell right now. <laughs> and you could kind of, in that moment, you realize that actually she's in hell. Right? Yeah. She's in torment. And it was her very torment that made her insist 
that somebody else is tormented, yeah. We had some funny services in <laughs> different places. <laughs> Yes. Stupid, but like what I mean is, like And I guess what we come to then is if you actually take them all together and you say what did they want to communicate because yes if you if you read critical books which I do I love the critical scholars that puts these texts next to one another and in this gospel Jesus actually said it's slightly different from this one. Uh, and when the people that believe in inerrancy said, he said both, but he just kind of, but actually it starts not making sense after a while. Um, they recorded it a bit differently in the two. But the, I think it's a challenge if we think that truth is so static that it must be contained in the exact words, that there is a variety of meanings, but the heart of Jesus' message, I think, is beautifully on display in the Gospels. Um, but little things, you, you know, we, we can look at uh, Matthew and Luke and, the, you know, when we look at the, uh, the story of Jesus' birth, we think of him being born in a stable in Bethlehem and then the wise men came and the shepherds came and the, then, uh, then he had went somewhere else. But if you actually put those two texts next to one another, you can see these people wrote two different stories. In the one text, Jesus lived in Bethlehem. <laughs> he was born there at home. Um, and then uh, shepherds came and worshipped him. There was no wise men, etc. Then they heard about, uh, or, or the wise men came, not the shepherds. Then, then they heard about the plot to kill all the young people. And so they fled to Nazareth because, you know, the author knew, like everyone else, Jesus came of Nazareth, uh, and so we have to get Nazareth in that story as well. But the, the other text, if you put it next to it, is Jesus lived in Nazareth, and they traveled towards Bethlehem, um, and then he was born in a stable, and, and then the shepherds came and worshipped him, so there's no wise men here. And then they went back home to Nazareth. And, and so when you start actually comparing the text next to one another, I've got no problem with saying they kind of played around the same story to get to the central idea of who Christ was. Um, but those differences 
need not be a challenge to my appreciation of the text. They can actually enrich it because I can see that Luke wanted to say something different to Matthew. Um, he had a different audience and wanted to emphasize a different idea. Just like John had Jesus die on a different day than all the other Gospels because he wanted to make sure we understand he's the Lamb of God and he dies at the exact moment the Lamb of God dies. Whereas in the other Gospels, Jesus is eating the Passover lamb with his disciples that evening. Um, so they, they didn't have our category that said we need to be as factual as possible for it to be truth. That is something that develops later on in our society. Um, they had facts, of course, and there was, but they weren't as narrow to say if we don't get it exactly right factually, it can no longer convey truth. They conveyed truth with a story where sometimes they had to change the facts to convey the story more powerfully. I think it's probably easier if you push the right button rather than the left. <laughs> Yeah. Thoughts and beliefs. So, yeah. Don't worry if, if you want to. <laughs> 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 no, I'm not going to say, Mel, I'll read that and say that Jesus cast out cast out demons. Yeah. I'd read that and say, yeah, that's what it says, I'll, I'll go for that. But yeah. that doesn't make me want to put a wall up between us. You know, we're all, we're all, it's good to be safe. Yeah. I think that is what, what we discussed today. That is what Luke wanted to bring everybody to. That in all your interpretation, in all this conversation that might sometimes be a bit confusing, if we can come to this place where your heart is bursting with the revelation of a God who finds his existence in you, you're on the right track of interpretation. <laughs> but if, if all your interpretation just brings you to not an awareness of that, but just, you know, confusion about maybe the facts of things, then, then that is kind of the wrong track of interpretation. Yeah. Yes. I was talking to a lady at a dinner last week, and she's a Buddhist. I don't know how the conversation she said a friend of mine just cannot find a church because yeah. every time she goes to a particular church it's narrow yes. this is what we leave, you're slightly out so yeah. she has to go somewhere else yeah. I mean that's something that we desperately try and avoid here really. yeah. embrace. beautiful, beautiful I've, I've so experienced that I just want to hear you say it though, yeah. when you said that Jesus finds his existence in us just yes. want to make sure that you're not saying, therefore he doesn't have his existence larger than that. <laughs> you're not saying that, are you? So, just as our corporate existence is more than my existence individually, yes, I believe God is, is not just finding his existence in individual instances. But that all of creation is an expression of God. And that, yes, I would certainly 
agree that God transcend, transcends just the physical existence, that he is the cause and, and the sustaining power of all of that existence. But what a joy to find yourself as one of those unique possibilities in God, that in you he has a, a, an event, an instance of existence that is so beautifully unique. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.